Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Gabriel Bergmoser on his terrifying new novel, The Hunted. Gabriel Bergmoser is an award-winning Melbourne-based author who grew up in a small rural town. In 2015, he won the prestigious Sir Peter Ustinov Television Scriptwriting Award for his pilot Windmills, and his plays include Heroes, which was nominated for the 2017 Kenneth Branagh Award for New Drama Writing. A film adaptation of The Hunted is being developed in a joint production between Stampede Ventures and Vertigo Entertainment in Los Angeles, The Hunted being his new novel, which we're going to be talking about today. Gabriel, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you so much for having me, Neil. First of all, how would you describe The Hunted? So The Hunted is essentially, and excuse me for sounding like I'm putting the sales pitch thing on because this is kind of what I've, what I've you know, <laughs> distilled, the, distilled the elevator pitch down to, but it's essentially a pulse-pounding, action-packed, gritty siege story taking place in the middle of nowhere roadhouse out in the Australian Badlands. So it involves a handful of scrappy survivors trying to hold their own against a group of very, very bad people whose motives aren't entirely highly clear initially, but slowly get revealed in horrifying ways over the course of the book through an alternating timeline that moves between the present of the siege and chapters that detail exactly what led up to this happening. You've written for film and television and plays, as I've just mentioned. In terms of writing books, something that's not particularly mentioned in that blurb is you've also written a series of young adult novels. This is obviously something of a departure from those. Yes, yeah, you could say that, yeah. So I want to talk about how that was then, writing, having, having written those books, having spent a lot of time writing books particularly aimed at young adults, what it was like to sit down and write this. Look, in some ways it was liberating, I think, is the way to put it, because, you know, the Boone Shepherd trilogy, I mean, I'd written novels before, um, nothing that was ever published, but the Boone Shepherd Shepherd trilogy was, you know, I guess my entry into the world of published literature. And and as you sort of alluded to, they, they couldn't be more different. I mean, Boone was basically Tintin meets Doctor Who set in the world of Lemony Snicket. It was packed with uh, literary and pop culture references. It was very swashbuckling. It was quirky. It was silly. It was adventurous. You know, it was the kind of thing that 
I guess like 11 year old me would have adored to read. The Hunted, on the other hand, is kind of the thing that 13 year old me would have adored to read. So I kind of, when I wrapped the Boone Shepherd trilogy, I really just wanted to do something different. You know, I wanted to exercise a different muscle. And I've always been a fan of, of horror, basically, and of, you know, gritty thrillers that push the characters to the limits and, you know, have these these challenging corners that they end up in where you're sitting there and you're wondering how the hell are they going to get out of this? And that to me was the real, was the real fun of writing a book like this, because while I'd written dark things before and I'd written thrillers before for the stage and, uh, and for, for the screen in screenplays that have never been produced, I'd never really gone this far before. And so there was a, there was a real vicious, delight to being kind of so unleashed and to writing something that really had no limits in terms of content that could really just like go extreme but in a way that you know i don't think i know and look i know that there have been people who've been put off by the the violence of the hunted but as the author i i think i'm allowed to kind of give you permission to not take it totally seriously like it's certainly not a comedy or anything but you know it's it is designed to be like a little bit fun and that's not to say that it's it's hollow or it's meaningless thematically or anything but i definitely want to write something that you could take that same kind of vicious delight in that i felt while writing it no i can absolutely i can see that i mean it it reads like a like a horror movie and a horror movie is supposed to be a you know a roller coaster ride Absolutely. Let's talk about some of the. There's a relatively large cast of characters that appear in the in the book, and and I think interestingly for this for this type of novel, um, which we'll talk about in a, in a bit, even some of the minor characters are um are like well drawn and interesting, and you sort of want to know more about them. But um, let's talk about some of the um. I want to talk about three of the main characters first of all. Starting with Frank. Tell us who he is, and and I guess why he is where he is. So Frank is a middle-aged roadhouse owner. He he lives and runs the roadhouse that forms the setting for most of the story. He's been out there at the start of the book for about 10 years or so, and you get the impression that Frank has a fairly sketchy past. There's stuff that's happened to him that has led to him essentially isolating himself out. I'm, I'm not going to use the word self-isolate because we're all sick of hearing that at the moment, but to kind of putting himself somewhere where I think in his mind he can't do any more damage. And over the course of the book, at least glimmers of what has led him to come to this place begin to become detailed and begin to come out. And Frank, to me, is reflective of a lot of people I grew up around. So I grew up in a small country town and Frank is representative of, you know, your quintessential small town Aussie bloke. But to me, when I was writing a lot of his material I was listening to a couple of Bruce Springsteen songs in particular. Uh, the one that's probably the most well-known is The River. So The River by Bruce Springsteen, to me, that song, which is such an achingly sad depiction of a small-town life that is in some ways constrained by an accidental pregnancy early on and by falling into a rut and not feeling like you can get away from it, that, to me, was Frank's story in a nutshell. And I saw a lot of people, people who you know were adults when I was growing up, but also the people who I grew up around, kind of go down similar paths. And so I was, I I felt a lot for Frank in writing his story. And there was a lot about his story that I think was really familiar. And that, you know, that not necessarily the sadness that comes from having a kid too young or thinking that your dreams have been shattered or whatever, but him reaching a point in his life where he realizes that he's taken a lot of wrong turns. And at this point, he feels like he doesn't deserve any 
he doesn't deserve family. He doesn't deserve love. He doesn't deserve affection because of the person he's been. And over the course of the story, his journey is to a place of self-forgiveness and self-realization and to to realize that for all that he has beaten himself up over the years, in the grand scheme of things, he's not that bad, especially when put up against some of the people who he has to face off with in this book. And of course, at the beginning of the book, something happens to Frank, which, I mean, I'm sure for him is as alarming as anything else that happens throughout the rest of the novel. His granddaughter, Ali, is um, is sent to stay with him out at this roadhouse. Tell us something about her. So... Ali, to me, she in some ways was there to be Frank's redemption, but in other ways, she was there to, I guess, um, I guess, look, I'm, I'm really fascinated by the way that adults relate to teenagers in general. And it's something that stuck with me or, or struck me recently, because I do, I do a little bit of creative writing tutoring with teenagers and kids. And something that has kind of come back to me over the course of doing that is that if you think back to school and you think back to your favorite teachers... Your favorite teachers were never the nice teachers. They were the teachers who treated you like a person and the teachers who treated you with respect and like equals. Now, when I was a kid, I was very obsessed with the work of John Marsden. I don't know if John Marsden is known over in the UK, but in Australia, he's huge. He's like probably the defining YA author in this country. And John Marsden ran writing camps and I went to one of those writing camps when I was a kid, which given that he was my idol was, you know, totally transformative and mind-blowing. And John Marsden really believed in and spoke about at length this idea that you need to treat teenagers with respect. Treating with respect doesn't mean being overly kind or accepting or whatever, you know, like respect also means respect them enough to call them out if they say something stupid or do the wrong thing or whatever. But that always really stuck with me because I think there's a frustration when you're a teenager to adults not taking you seriously and to adults not giving you the respect to be honest with you. And that, I think, can lead to a lot of resentment and a lot of kind of anger that I think people tend to write off as being like, oh, they're just being a surly teenager. But in my experience, I find that teenagers aren't that surly if you just talk to them like they matter or don't laugh them off or don't write them off. And Ali, to me, is somebody who, for her whole life, has been patronized in that way by her parents, by people at school, by all of that. And she has reached a place shortly before the book started where she has snapped. She's belted somebody who was giving her a hard time at school. And her parents, rather than actually address the issues head on with her and say, hey, where has this come from, have packed her off to stay with granddad because they're going through a divorce. They don't want to deal with her. And again, in Ali's mind, continuing this pattern of adults just not taking her seriously, she's been sent off to be somebody else's problem. And over the course of this story, Frank and Ali kind of find that they sort of need each other because Frank does take her seriously and Frank does treat her with respect. And Ali, on the other hand, when given that respect, is able to see past the perceived unforgivableness that Frank thinks characterizes him and actually show Frank that he is still worthy of love and he is still deserving of affection and he can still have a family who matters to him at this point in his life. And you said that she acts as a sort of redemption for Frank as well. And we could say that about the third character I want to talk about too. Um, She also performs that function for Maggie. Absolutely brilliant creation, Maggie. Tell us something about this character and her background. Oh, thank you so much. Maggie is just, I mean, Maggie was, Maggie's the reason for the book, you know, and, th- and I don't want to beat around the bush there because, you know, in its earliest iteration, this was a short story. It was just the Maggie and Simon flashback material, which if you read the book is kind of peppered throughout the siege. But I've, I've spoken about this before, but it was as I was kind of writing Maggie and shifting into the part of the story where we see her perspective that I had that, I had that wonderful feeling that sometimes, I mean, very rarely kind of happens for authors where you go, oh, hang on, you're not who I thought you were. 
like I had a belief about who you were and what your role in this story was, and that was incorrect. And it's that feeling of the steering wheel being wrenched away from you as this character goes off in a totally unexpected direction that you had absolutely no way of anticipating. So Maggie, when we first meet her in the story, is a drifter. She wanders into a middle-of-nowhere pub. She gets talking to the character of Simon, who is our sort of audience surrogate in the flashback part of the story. And from Simon's perspective, you know, she's a bit strange and she's, you know, she's maybe a little bit dodgy. You know, there's scars on her collarbone. Uh, She's carrying around a bag full of cash, which, you know, really should be a red flag. But Simon's a young man out on the road and hasn't really spoken to anyone for ages. And Maggie's kind of cute and he sort of gets swept up in it. But from his perspective, we soon start to see that there is a lot more to Maggie than he maybe initially expected. And what we slowly discover is that Maggie is somebody who has a very clear agenda that she's pursuing, a very distinct reason for what she's doing. But the problem here is that, particularly in the first half of the story, she's not too worried about the consequences that her actions or her pursuit might have on the other characters around her, which is one of the reasons that, I guess, the threats that erupt later on in the story erupt in the way that they do. So Maggie is somebody who has been forged by violence. I think it's fair to say she comes from an abusive background. And shortly before the book started, she did something in response to that violence that has led to her being on the run and has led to her basically avoiding the authorities and has led to her trying to stay one step ahead of whatever this mysterious thing that she did was. And Maggie in terms of her role in the overall story, she's not really a hero and she's not really a villain, but she is the force of nature that you want to have on your side when things start going down. And in that back half of the book, she is exactly what Frank and Ali and the others need to get them out of the absolutely horrific situation that they found themselves in. And as much as Maggie might scare them and as much as Maggie might scare herself, and honestly, as much as Maggie might scare me as the author, she's kind of their only hope because she's the only one who is willing to basically match the bad guys for every violent blow that they dole out in sometimes ways that are more extreme than even they might have conceived of. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Gabriel Bergmoser. We're talking about his latest novel, The Hunted. And Gabriel, I mentioned at the beginning, I think you mentioned in the interview too, that you grew up in in rural Australia yourself. Tell us something about what that was like. Well, I'm, I mean, I guess, you know, it's probably no surprise to anybody listening to this or who's read my work that I was, I was an artsy kid, you know, I, um, a lot of my background was in theatre and, I grew up kind of loving theater, but also reading voraciously and, uh, you know, loving movies. I was an obsessive film buff from a very, very early age. I haven't missed an issue of Empire magazine since I was 11. But in a small country town and more pointedly in a small country town school, you know, that's not always entirely accepted to have interests that are outside of, you know, basically sport. I'm not for a second saying that I had an enormously rough upbringing or anything like that, because it's not true. You know, there were I definitely came up against, I guess, the kind of uniquely Australian violent masculinity that a lot of The Hunted is dedicated to exploring. And I came up against that quite a few times as a teenager. And I was I was really lucky when I was about 14 to get a drama scholarship to a school in the city. And I went there and, you know, that sort of basically set me up for everything I've done since. But I think in terms of my hometown, you know, I still love my hometown. I still go back regularly. I've still got really close friends there. My family still live there. But I think it's the kind of place that is a great town to live if you're under 12 and over 30. Because in that in-between time, there's not a whole lot to do. And so I think that there's a tendency, and I don't think this is, you know, unique to my hometown. I think this is true of small towns in general. There's a tendency for teenagers to, you know, um, find ways of, uh, I guess, entertaining themselves that can be dangerous or self-destructive or destructive towards others. And I definitely experienced a lot of that growing up. And, you know, I think that, again, is just something that's quite universal. But no, my, my I should probably clarify, my, my hometown is not the town from the Hunter. Uh, it's it's nothing <laughs> like that. But I, I definitely drew inspiration from, I guess, some of what I experienced on the fringes of my town in creating this story. Well, this is what I wanted to go to next. So both, I guess, the town that Simon and Maggie stumble upon, where our antagonists live, and I guess also the roadhouse, Frank's roadhouse. Just describe to us where these places are set, what it's like. So I was really particular in writing The Hunter that I never actually said where it was set. And that was because the middle of nowhere roadhouse, you know, the the dilapidated weatherboard kind of rundown roadhouse with a couple of fuel pumps out the front and a sparse collection of out-of-date food on the rickety metal shelves, that's something that you see all around Australia, you know? That's something that you can run into pretty much anywhere. And, you know, vast fields of brown, swaying, dry grass and the rugged old farmhouses stuck behind it. You know, you can find that in Victoria, you can find that in Queensland, you can find that in New South Wales. I mean, I live in Victoria and, you know, obviously go to country Victoria quite a bit because that's where my family is. And I see so many places driving down those roads that could be the setting of The Hunted. But likewise, I did a road trip up to Queensland last year with my partner and a couple of friends. And it was the same, you know, there were there were a couple of points where we were saying, oh, that could be The Hunted or that could be The Hunted or that could be The Hunted. In terms of the town, I've had this theory that pretty much every small Australian town has stories about that other slightly smaller town up the road that you just shouldn't go to. And... If your town doesn't have those stories, then chances are you are that town. <laughs> um, I know that in my hometown we had them, and uh, I know that there are places like slightly bigger towns nearby that you know have those stories about my hometown. But I heard, I guess that like vague 
somewhat jocular judgment towards those other towns was something that I saw crystallized a little bit when a few friends of mine when I was younger went on road trips very similar to what Simon does in the book. And I was never brave enough to do that. But quite a few of them came back with just like really unsettling stories. And they, they never really said where they were. You know, I don't think they really knew where they were. They were just out on the road somewhere, but came back with quite unsettling stories about stopping in this town and hearing stories about the other town up the road and, you know, then ending up in that town and just having the sense that everything was just a little bit off. And these places that were so isolated that you wouldn't know if they were there if you hadn't taken one wrong turn down a dirt road and driven through another forest and suddenly you're in this place that you had no reason to think was there. So what kind of fascinated me about those stories and creeped me out in equal measure and I guess led me to write this book is the fact that hopefully not as extreme as the town we see in The Hunted, but these strange little pockets do exist because Australia is a vast country full of wilderness and full of, you know, twisting, dusty back roads that you can drive past regularly and have no idea where they lead. And I guess I just always had a fascination with where would those roads go. But the truth is that you find those roads anywhere around the country, anywhere around Australia. And I was, I thought it was more scary if I didn't specify where it was because that leaves you with the implicit sense that this could be happening anywhere in Australia. I want to talk about writing some of those characters, and I'm talking particularly about the, you know, the characters in the town. Because what's striking about this book, as as I said, is that you know even one of the throwaway, soon to be killed by our protagonists, bad guys, is often given a little description or a little line that humanizes them writing very very bad characters but that also you can slightly relate to well it's tricky because in the earliest iterations and i'm really glad you've said that because it was something that we spoke about a lot during the editorial process because in the earliest iterations i don't think the bad guys really had that much definition you know i think they were essentially just a succession of ultimately faceless flannelette shirt wearing backwards cap sporting shotgun toting leering you know caricatures and that was it but my editor Catherine milne at HarperCollins australia she was very adamant that we give them little things to just give them that little bit more texture and to distinguish them and and i don't know if Catherine will thank me for saying this but her reasoning for it was if they're given that little bit more detail that's going to make them more loathsome so we're going to give ourselves more permission to cheer when they all die horribly which was really interesting and it, it reminded me of something i once read in a in a review i think it was of one of the george a romero zombie films and it brought up this quote or this um this concept i've never really heard of before where it referred to the way that romero wrote characters as character by thumbnail so it was referring to this idea that because it was a zombie horror film, you know, you, you can't really flesh out characters in the same way you could an epic literary novel, you know, like you can't give them the same depth and subtlety and everything as you could in Mad Men because you, do, you don't have the same luxury of spending heaps of time with them to, to show the quirks, the minutiae and everything. So what Romero was really good at doing was just giving them very distinct character traits and glimmers of history that made them feel like more than just cannon fodder. And that was something I wanted to do for my protagonists and my antagonists was to give them all what I refer to as anchors, you know, like whether it's in the case of the bad guys, whether it's Maddie, one of the guys and his relationship with the dog, you know, he really likes the dog, the vicious hunting dog that later on gets deployed in some pretty horrible ways. Um, whether it was Caden, who's the guy who's always chewing gum and always wearing the wraparound glasses and always grinning and always staring at Maggie. You know, it's those those little things that create texture. And likewise, with the heroes, I tried to give them all something in their past that they have reason to flash back to at some point in the story. And that 
informs their arcs in little ways like whether it's frank's past with this horrible hunting trip he once had that has really shaped him whether it's delilah's kind of defiance against being controlled or being told what to do by people in her life whether it's charlie's constant lingering gnawing insecurity that he's not man enough you know all of those things inform the choices the characters make in different ways and i think what works about it is that they serve to drive the plot because the characters choices drive the plot but they also mean that the characters just have that little bit more depth than just being you know your your standard uh teenagers in a friday the 13th film who were there to get off violently and hopefully if i've done my job right make you care that little bit more when they die and i'm sure that there are readers out there who disagree and who think that they're not deep enough and all of that and i totally understand that but for me, it was just a matter of, of striking that balance, you know, between making sure the book was fast paced, making sure it was a page turner, making sure it was relentless and it really was something that you wanted to power through and tear through and that was very easy to read. But to just make sure that the characters were just that little bit more, you know, to make sure that they felt lived in and fully rounded and like people. And what it did for me as well, I think, because I mean, if it's not giving too much away about the story, what there's this sort of brilliant twist to the situation of the town, which is what they basically say is to people that just show up. So when Simon and and Maggie show up in this town, basically, if people make the decision themselves to stay, then they're allowed to stay and they become a member of that town. It's only if they run away that they potentially get murdered. And so with a lot of those characters, I was... You know, I want to know their story. This particular character, why did they end up there? Why did they decide to stay? What's their story? Yeah, it's it's so funny because I was talking to somebody about this the other day and about like how I've got a reasonably clear idea in my head of what the backstory of the town is and of what the backstory of a lot of these guys are to the point where like I've even thought about like, do I write a prequel? Like, do I write the story of how the town got that way and like how it, but in some ways, like I think it, it would always be like Hannibal Rising Syndrome, right? Like if you, yeah. if you explain it too much, much you kind of ruin the mystique and you ruin what's creepy about it. i mean I, I think horror and fear always works best when it's in some way trading on the unknown or something that might be hinted at but never fully explained and that can go too far and you know i, I guess the trick as an author is not to not to fall into the trap of falling so in love with your creations that you want to you know you want to wring every possible story out of them to the point where they lose they lose the mystery that i guess hopefully makes them compelling I just wanted to talk about writing about that sort of Australian masculinity as you've as you've already described. I can remember like a couple of years ago interviewing. I was lucky to in, lucky enough to interview Tim Winton, and um, that's his basically stock in trade. You know the descriptions of Australian toxic masculinity, and we see that obviously to the extreme in this book. But it's obviously you know as you said, it's based in your own experiences. It's based in something. What is it about Australian men? I, oh, look, I, I don't know. And it, it's funny because, like, I've seen online, like, in book club Facebook groups I'm part of and everything, probably more there than sort of in any, in any like, fully detailed reviews or anything. But I guess criticism and offense towards the way to, – towards, I guess, the perception that I'm trying to suggest that all Australian men are like this, which I'm not. I'm really not. I mean, as I've said in other interviews, like, if I did believe that, I wouldn't have included the character of Frank, you know, or I wouldn't have included him in the same way. He would have been very different. You know, Frank is, again, he's a quintessential – Aussie bloke but he's ultimately a good guy I don't know I I think this type of violent masculinity you know the beer swilling g'day mate kind of pig hunting everything you know I, I think that's uniquely Australian but I think pack mentality and this this feeling of you know having to act a certain way in order to belong and that belonging pushing you to 
potentially be complicit in some pretty horrible stuff. I think that's universal. I don't think that's just Australian, but it was the Australian variation of that that I think I felt equipped and I felt qualified to write about. And I think that that's something that like I've definitely been interrogating in myself a lot more recently and I guess I've been more attuned to recently is this this sense that if you don't behave in a certain way or you don't present a certain front then you're not man enough, you know? And it's like when you're at the pub and you're hanging out with people and everyone's had a couple of beers and then guys start talking about what fights they've been in, you know, or what, you know, being like, oh, I got into this fight and this fight. And and you immediately feel this, like, this overwhelming need to, like, dredge up some story that can compete and compare because if you don't, then you're somehow soft or you're somehow weak or whatever. And I have this memory that it stuck with me for years for this, um, this place I used to work at, I used to work at a theater restaurant in Melbourne, Dracula's. And Dracula's basically was, you know, it was we all dressed up as vampires and we wore makeup and we acted like evil monsters and whatever and gave people food. And it was a bar and a restaurant. They did a sh- dinner and a show type thing. Anyway, there was this one night where a couple of customers came in and got really rowdy. And a couple of the guys who worked in the bar dragged the customers outside and these customers basically tried to beat them up. And I guess there was like a scuffle of some kind. And anyway, later on the night, the two guys who were, who were involved in the scuffle were upstairs in the makeup room taking off their makeup. And they were in the middle of this like big conversation. People like, oh yeah, did you see? Like I hit him in the face and oh, I got him real hard and I got him like this and I got him like this. And, and I was sitting there being like, oh my God, okay. Like there, there's something really weird about you guys having this, basically, you know, this conversation to like show off how tough you both are while you're taking off your makeup. <laughs> but... I kind of got to the point where I was like, I was just, I, I was like, I'm not going to sit here and listen to this anymore. And I, I got, I, I walked out of the room. And as I walked out of the room, one of the other guys who walked there went to walk into the room and he stopped and he listened for a moment to what they were saying. And then he turned to me and he was like, tough talk. And I was like, yeah. And he goes, yeah, screw that. And he just left. And it was one of those moments that I was like, oh, you actually don't have to be like that. And, you know, it ultimately comes like so many corrosive or toxic things from insecurity. Because if you, if you feel the need to show off to people around you how tough or how strong or how manly you are, then that's really only ever going to be because you don't think that you're any of those things because you're, or you're worried on some level that you're not any of those things and you have something to prove. Whereas if you are ultimately secure in your own masculinity, then you don't feel the need to, to conform to this certain archetype of what a man should be or, you know, to to uh to succumb to peer pressure or any of those things i mean it ultimately comes down to a kind of insecurity and ultimately people have to sort of grow up or not as they get further on in their lives and decide if that's the kind of person they want to be or not and in a extreme way that's kind of frank's journey because his whole thing is that at some point in his past he chose to go in a different direction from the other people in his life who were pulling him in one direction and he suffered because of it. And the the hunters, in some ways for him, symbolize the path he could have gone down but chose not to. And what that means for him is one of the central, I guess, emotional journeys of the book. At this point, can I um, ask you to, to read us a bit of The Hunted? Yes, I've chosen a little scene from about halfway through the book, and I've chosen it because it's a particularly uh, it's a particularly full on scene that I think gives you a good sense of what to expect. I don't think it's too spoilery. I think you know if you've been listening to this conversation or you've you know read the blurb or seen the English cover with the hook and everything, you you pretty much know what you're in for. But I think this scene kind of speaks to what the book is is in terms of genre, but also what the book is about in terms of theme. So I'll. Have a bit of a read and see how we go. The stench was the first thing Maggie noticed. It was pungent, rotten, like meat left out in the sun too long. She squinted in the dark, trying to make out what she was looking at. 
There were shapes hanging from the roof. She took another step forwards. It was as though someone had punched her in the stomach. She staggered, then her knees hit the ground and she was vomiting. Her heart was pounding in her ears and her body was shaking. A hot horror filled her. She retched again. Across the rough ceiling, from wall to wall, was a long metal bar, over which hung several thick chains with large hooks attached. And on the hooks were bloodied, misshapened lumps of flesh that had once been people. Some had been here longer than others. The skin was cracked and brown, hardened and leathery. Those were the easiest to look at. They resembled humans the least. It was the fresher ones, the ones that still had arms and legs and heads that made her sick again. In total, there were six bodies. Four hooks still hung low to the ground and empty. Following the chains with her eyes, Maggie saw that they led to winches at the far end of the room, placed on the dirt floor, the dirt floor that was mostly dark red with blood. It took Maggie three attempts to stand. Her brain was working overtime, putting it all together. They brought people here and strung them up on the hooks and then, then bled them dry and cut off bits until she had thought she had nothing left to throw up. She was wrong. She had to move fast. Nobody knew she was here, and that meant she could use the cover of the trees to run until she found a road again. The moment she could flag down a car, she would get as far down the road as she could in any direction, and she stopped. Her heart had slowed, but still felt loud, every beat making her body shake more. Her bag with her money was back at the house. She pushed that away. It didn't matter. Losing her money was nothing compared to ending up on one of these hooks. But a frantic voice in her head persisted. You're fucked if you leave it too. You can't get a job. You'll be found, and... She shook her head, trying to push away the thoughts, and as she did, she heard a sound behind her. She spun. Kev, still in his singlet and jeans, stood in the doorway. He didn't look angry. On the contrary, he looked amused as he took her in, hands in his pockets, as relaxed as if he was overseeing another barbecue. Having a bit of a sticky beak, are you, love? Maggie started to back away. Kev didn't move. The hunting bounty is never pretty. We try to keep the Sheilas from seeing it, you know? They, the women don't know. Maggie's voice sounded steadier than she felt. Kev seemed to be considering her. Tell me, that limp dick you came in with, he impress you, excite you? Maggie wanted to look at the door to gauge the distance, whether she could make it, could get past Kev. She didn't like her chances if he saw that. Nah, he said. Didn't think so. Pretty boy from the city screaming for his mum at the first sign of anything a bit rough. Can't much blame him, though. That's how the cities breed them. What'd they churn out their weeds? Not men. Nah, men fight, men protect, men hunt and men kill. Men spill blood when they have to and they don't give a shit as long as their family stays in one piece. This, he nodded to one of the bodies. It's about all that and more. You come to this town, you want to be a part of it, you hunt. And when you taste the hot blood for the first time, you either like it or you don't. If you don't, he shrugged. Well, that's the difference between the hunters and the hunted, ain't it? These people, Maggie did her best to emphasise the second word even though her voice felt about to betray her. They wronged you? Nah, pigs don't wrong hunters, Kev said. They just drew the shit straw, evolution-wise. So I've been talking to Gabriel Bergmoser. We've been talking about his new novel, The Hunted, which is out in the UK from Faber. Gabriel, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us. Thanks so much for having me, Neil. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.